This podcast is brought to you by the Pearlfish. The Pearlfish makes its home in the anus of the sea cucumber. So the next time you complain about your apartment being a little shitty, remember, you could be a pearlfish. Hello, my fishy friends, and welcome to another episode of Getting Fishy With It and the Getting Fishy With It podcast. I'm Josh. I'm Amber. I'm Christine. And today we're going to be talking about water chemistry. But before we get into water chemistry, we're going to get into what's new with everyone. So Amber, what's new with you? Yeah, I don't really have much to report on. I guess it's been really nice for me since I'm done with school that I get to now catch up with everyone. And so everyone's just kind of coming out of the woodworks and it's like, hey, I want to hang out this weekend. (laughs) And so I think for this week, so tomorrow I'm going to a nice restaurant with some friends. So kind of getting out there. And then Friday, we have like a D&D session. So we'll be fighting the dragon. So this will be the final thing that we do. Oh, nice. Ooh. As a group. Yeah. Then it's over? Yeah. And then I guess we have to move on to a new campaign. Okay. Okay. Yeah. We'll break up the group. Yeah. Because I guess the final step in like D&D is always that you have to fight some dragon or big baddie. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Got you. Yeah. But yeah, I'm really excited for that. And then this weekend, we're going to a beer fest. So many of you, I don't know if some of you know this or not, but I'm a big beer snob. And so I love beer. The darker, the better. But yeah, (laughs) super excited about that. So you're a Guinness fan then, huh? Oh, yeah. Guinness is good. Mm, Delicious. Yeah, what about you, Christine? Literally nothing. I am a gamer and this year has been insane for video games so far. I don't know if you guys are aware, but there's been like a heck of a lot of games that have come out. But many. (laughs) Yeah, it's this year is just wild. Like there's just game after game after game. So I've just been a hermit mostly and just playing games, which really is just playing World of Warcraft <laughs> <laughs> along with all the other games that have come out, like the the current like expansion content for World of Warcraft has been really great. So speaking of fighting dragons, uh, we're not fighting dragons, really. We're kind of allying with them. So that's fun. While other places have ponies or parrots, we have dragons oh wow yeah that's so. interesting. oh that's cool i am a big dragon fan not in a weird way i just like dragons <laughs> <laughs> and so the whole you know having all the lore of the dragons and stuff from warcraft has been like my jam so i am enjoying myself but other than that not much just work it's been real hot here but nothing else how about you josh uh yeah i just had my 35th birthday So it was Woo-hoo. quite a blast. Uh, we, yeah, it was great. My wife put on like a whole like big party for me, which is neat. So I had all these friends come in. We had a party on Saturday, which is really cool. And then you can totally cut this if you want to. But I also, we also went to this Star Wars burlesque show, which was a blast and so fun. So I highly recommend it. It was uh, hilarious. <laughs> It's hilarious from like basically like the first scene or two. So highly recommend. I would go again if I could. So I think they're shutting down in New York. I think they're going other places. So Hmm. um, it was, yeah, it was a great 35th birthday. So I very was very feeling very thankful. And basically Sunday it rained all day and I just like just recoup, excuse me, recuperated from it. So um, yeah, ready to, ready to get through the next week. 
as a 35 year old. Also, I should mention, I went like I was cleaning up and people have said like a lot of things about how once I hit 35, I'm going to have all these problems. <laughs> uh -oh. <laughs> and I reached down to like, I was like pulling like beers out of the cooler and I tweaked my back and I was like, no, it's happening. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Look at me. I know we seem to be inside I'm each old. I beg your pardon. Oh, I'm like the crypt keeper. So it's all downhill from here, apparently. But, yeah, yeah, give it a few more years and you'll be saying I have a bad knee and a good mm -hmm. leg and bad leg. Feels like rain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, just give it a few years. It's all I downhill. I can't wait to be crotchety and like super old and be like com like complaining and telling kids about stuff. Or, <laughs> you, know, you know, how I used to be. <laughs> yeah, or, you know, every time you get up out of a chair, you're like, oh, that's <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost at that point where I pretty much get up out of a chair. I'm like, oh, I love it. <laughs> My, yeah. Give it time. <laughs> well, it's a great excuse to become a cyborg. There you go. Yeah. That'll be our future. Let's be real. Sure. <laughs> like partially cyborgs. Either yeah. that or zebrafish DNA. Let's just, like, that's, that's oh, yeah. Regeneration. Out. Here we come. Hell yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah if you yeah. haven't seen that episode, we talk about zebrafish in the first episode. So go back and listen. It's worth definitely, it. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> cool. Well, shall we get started? Let's get into it. All right. Well, this episode this week is about water chemistry, specifically fresh water. I am, I've gone down this rabbit hole of water chemistry. And I'm stuck down here, so please help. Help me, Rod. Help me help you. <laughs> but uh, we're specifically talking about uh, freshwater just because there's a lot of minutiae and a lot of like complicated stuff, baggage that's attached to like saltwater or marine chemistry. And it's just too much to cover. And I don't know anything about it. So I think it would be a great opportunity if anybody out there is listening that is a marine water chemistry nerd and wants to join us to chat about it. Um, I think we'd be happy to have somebody on to talk about it. I don't know. If, I mean, Josh, you've had a saltwater tank. I have. Um, I would consider. Yeah, I have someone in mind, actually, who okay. uh, does a lot of saltwater stuff. So now, cool. now that you're saying that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, oh, this might be interesting. Yeah, um, definitely. So I'll, I'll talk to him and see if he's uh, interested in coming on. Because, yeah, I've, I've spoken in the past with like Aquarius from like aquariums and like big, you know, the big institutions that have sharks and stuff, not mm -hmm. a small aquarium. And they, you know, start talking about macros and micros. And I'm like, I don't know. This is too much for me. <laughs> so we're pretty much just going to talk about freshwater water chemistry and like things that are important for folks that keep home aquaria or maybe you work with fish in a laboratory um or you're just interested in kind of like generally animals in like managed human care and like the kind of things that you need to know um a lot of this stuff applies as well to like just the wild but it's uh a bit more complicated when you're talking about like all the things that go on in like a, a living system like a lake or a river so mm. what do you guys uh, what's your kind of experience with uh, water chemistry and working with fish in the past? Do you have any any like anecdotes or anything? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think my water chemistry experience came from like pet store stuff early on. I think I just 
would knew how to do like basic tests for people. Usually it was because like someone would bring their fish back and be like, it died. <laughs> Here's some water. And of course, like we would always tell them like bring in the water separately from the fish, because if you bring in a dead fish in, yeah. in a bag, it's going to have bad water quality because it's like just been marinating in the bag <laughs> in the water. Yeah. <laughs> mm, that sounds good. I'll have that. Um, so when we got them to do that, oftentimes you could figure out what was going on more likely than not, it had to do with, um, you know, your tank, not cycling properly. So we're going to talk about, I'm sure we'll talk about nitrogenous waste and the, and the nitrogen cycle later, but yeah, basically that's my experience, stuff like that. And then sort of like not quite understanding all the uh, shortcuts and how to like help sort of fix your water quality and stuff. I think I still have learned those things along the way, but as a young fish keeper, I think I sort of got lucky um, because I was essentially using tap water with like things to remove chlorine. And then, you know, there are certain things that you take for granted using tap water as opposed to RO. And so, yeah, I've learned a lot of things as I went, but um, I feel real pretty, pretty good about it. And I can still, but I can still, still, still learn a lot more, I'm sure. And I probably will this episode. <laughs> sure. How about you, Amber? Any, like, what's your kind of background with this? Yeah, just to piggyback off of what Josh was saying. And so when I first started out working with zebrafish, I did very simple testing um, of the water. And so I don't believe I did as much testing as I did once I got to Northwestern, uh, which was like we did like a mm. whole bunch of tests, um, just testing the water to make sure that it was adequate for the fish. But I think, you know, it was really important to me for me to learn about that along the way, just because I also came from like a rodent background as well. And so with rodents, like they're typically in a cage and they're kind of exposed to the air or at least the air that's being pumped into the cages if they're on like a ventilated rack. Mm -hmm. But fish are so much different because they're surrounded by water. They live and breathe and eat in that water. Yep. And so a lot of people don't realize that and they don't realize the importance of why it's, you know, important to have good quality water and so mm. as josh was mentioning that's what leads to you know a lot of bad things whether it's like really bad bacteria or viruses um that's affecting like the quality of life for your fish sure yeah yeah there's a lot a lot of little things and then when we talk about it we'll see how like some of these things are connected um and the all the little bits and pieces like i think i showed you guys the like gif in the discord of like charlie day from uh always sunny <laughs> with the strings all attached that was me writing these notes where i'm just like it's all connected <laughs> you guys like i i in my experience when i'm talking to folks who are new to like working with fish whether they're like hobbyists or they are folks working with zebrafish or other fish in labs Everyone finds it super scary. Do you guys find the whole like trying to understand the chemistry and trying to control the chemistry of the fish systems? Did you guys ever find that scary, especially when it was new to you guys? I didn't. I did find it frustrating when I didn't quite understand, like when I didn't quite understand like how ammonia worked and certain things like that. Like I definitely killed my fair share of fish growing up because I was just like trying to figure it out and yeah. like. It just was not something I would, I probably could have looked up a lot more things on the internet, I guess, but I think maybe it was hubris. Like maybe I was like, I got this. And then I just would end up getting my fish killed or something like that. So I don't know if scary was the right word. It didn't seem so daunting, but it definitely was like frustrating early on. And nowadays it's not, not too scary to me. Maybe only like trace small things when it comes to water quality that I'm still like figuring out. Right. And that sure. may or may not even affect 
health of your fish or aquatic animals. So, right. Right. For sure. How about you, Amber? Yeah. I remember again, like the first time when I was starting out, like, I think like the basic things that I did was like the pH and the temperature of the water. And that was Mm -hmm. about it. And I remember one time I was talking to my PI and he's just like, oh man, the nitrates are just so high. And I was just like, what is that? Mm-hmm, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I really didn't know what like, you know, nitrogenous waste was along mm-hmm. with like the ammonia and everything. Um, but he was just like, yeah, look at this like reading. And it was like super high. And then later on, it was like really important to have built that knowledge like into when I was at Northwestern and we had just built this brand new facility and like everything was high. It was mm. like ridiculous. And, you know, mm-hmm. obviously the fish were kind of suffering as a result which it happens um but just like knowing what to do in those cases like I think it kind of took the edge off whereas like if I had not known or if any of us had not known anything about this like it would have been really stressful Mm. sure for sure and I think it, it doesn't have to be scary but I think that it can be hard to find the resources that you need. And like, even if you're an aquarist and you're Googling stuff, there's a lot of really bad info out there. Like, yeah. mm. I mean, that's just the internet, right? There's lots of bad info out what? there. What? No, everything is true on the internet. <laughs> what are you I, talking about? I read it on the internet and it is true. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, yeah, it really doesn't need to be scary. But I'm hoping that kind of this discussion that we have will try to be kind of a primer for folks who are, feeling overwhelmed by the water chemistry end of things and like kind of give them a bit of a better understanding of like how all these things fit together. For me, the number one thing I tell folks when I'm trying to talk to them about water chemistry, because they're freaking out about their pH being 6.5 or something like that. When you're working with freshwater fish in particular, a lot of them can adjust quite well to different environmental parameters over time. But the, the key when you're working with fish in a freshwater environment is stability. So, you know, if you live in a place that has super hard water, like I grew up on a well, like my water, the pH of my water back home was always like eight and a half ish. Right. Mm, Wow. And I mean, I bred angelfish in that, um, but it was a matter of acclimating them to it. And the challenge is, you know, it's stressful for fish to have water parameters changing constantly because it's, it makes it hard for them to like regulate their own internal body systems. And mm-hmm. it's a, a kind of a stressor that doesn't need to be there. And so I tell people that like the key to all of this is stability. If your water is normal at this pH and this temperature or whatever, you're better off adjusting your animals to that, providing like a lot of common species, they can adjust to that than constantly struggling to try to get this pH to some ideal level and have it constantly be swinging around. Like every time you do a water change or whatever, you know, if it's Mm. a challenge to keep a parameter at a certain stable level, let it get to what the normal steady state is for that system. Don't be messing with it, you know, because it's, it's way worse to have your pH every week swing by a degree of pH than it is to keep it at a specific, you know, range. So Mm -hmm. That's kind of my little soapbox about water chemistry is like, chill out, it'll be okay. But like, <laughs> look at the bigger picture and don't try to like, get some platonic ideal of what a freshwater system should look like, providing you're not poisoning your fish. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
Yeah. <laughs> and don't make changes too quickly because yeah. I notice that a lot where people like try and make these like quick changes and they're like, oh, I can fix it. And that's not how it works. Like it takes a lot, like you mentioned, yeah. a long time for the fish to adjust. So whatever you're doing, they're going to have to readjust and that puts stress mm. on them. Yeah. So just like, yeah, taking things slow and just like switching salt even. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, sourcing salt from a different vendor, like don't just switch that on a dime. Yep. Yeah. Uh, people will notice sometimes, and this is getting into the, the salt water thing, because I mean, we use salt for dosing our systems for what we'll talk about later, but absolutely. There can be different, like what we call micros in that salt. So you always have your sodium chloride, the salt component, but then there may be different other minerals. Yeah. And so it changes and that can it changes everything, but again, it's all, it's all connected. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> oh so, yeah. I have considered changing like what salt we use, but I, there are enough folks that do uh, bone work in our facility that I would mm. never, never mm. want to change what we've always used. I hope they keep making that salt forever. Nice. Uh, otherwise <laughs> I'll have to start, like, I'll have to get an analysis of it and like start doing my own micros basically like some aquariums do that where they mm -hmm. like, they don't buy a brand name salt. I'm not going to mm -hmm. name, I'm not going to name drop any of them unless they want to sponsor us, <laughs> <laughs> but they may this not buy. I guess it's brought to you by. Yeah, <laughs> just exactly. Leave a blank. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it, not a sponsor. I'm not going to name them, but, mm -hmm. um, but some, some places will make their own salt. So they buy the sodium chloride and they add their own like magnesium and calcium oh, or whatever wow. at exact amounts. And I mean, I think it's a personal preference thing. It's sometimes a matter of like, will that brand of salt give us salt for free to help us, you know? So anyway, mm. but that, that's, let's talk about salt another time. <laughs> Yeah, your soapbox involves a lot of salt. <laughs> I'm a salty person. What can there. I say? I'm just your salt. salty. That, that works. You're very salty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, all right. So let's get into just kind of the, the the basic things that someone who is a freshwater aquarist needs to be aware of. First thing I would say that's important and relates to all these things is water temperature. Um, it doesn't sound like a chemistry type thing, but it is really important for water chemistry. Fish in general cannot regulate their own body temperature. There are some that can, but most fish are something called poikilothermic. So they are basically taking on whatever the temperature is of the environment that they're in. I've been pronouncing that wrong for sure. Maybe I pronounced <laughs> it wrong. It's I thought one it of was those... poikilothermic. But is I guess it? Poikilothermic. No, poikilothermic sounds more British. Like I have no idea. It's one of those things where I've only ever seen that word. And I have never said it out loud. So <laughs> that was me with awry, the word awry. I always thought it was Ari. And I thought there oh. were two different words when I read it and when I said it. And then I finally like put it together in like high school. And I was like, wow, this is too late. <laughs> That's uh, I, that was me in sun dried tomatoes. I thought they were sundried tomatoes. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I never Amber, heard. Do you have one or are you just like smart? Oh, no, I have a lot of words that I pronounce wrong. Actually, my husband jokes. He's like, I should make a book called Words That Amber Gets Wrong. <laughs> That's pretty By funny. the way, so poikilotherm, like what's the difference between that and just saying ectotherm? Is it just, is there a difference? That's a really good question. I think, I'm not sure. Maybe we need to look that up. Yeah, 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 for sure. So let us know. Uh, I'll keep talking about temperature. So water, because the nature of like, 
it's a, a unique kind of solvent. Um, it has a really high specific heat capacity. So that means it's the amount of like energy that needs to go into water to increase the temperature by a degree. That's it's a lot for for the volume that of water. So you need to be mindful of that. It can be helpful, but can also be harmful. The fact that water takes a long time to heat up or cool down because it can hold heat for a long time as well means that it does provide a bit of a natural buffer to water temperature changes. Water temperature changes of more than say a degree um, Celsius can be really stressful for fish in like a day. So if the water temperature is constantly going up and down um, in on captive fish, it can be a little stressful. So it's nice that water actually kind of has a bit of a natural buffer to that. But the, the counterpoint is that it can take a lot of energy to keep water at a specific temperature. So you often need a very powerful heater to be able to keep water at a specific temperature. Um, but water temperature has an impact on all kinds of other chemistry things. So did you find out, Josh, the difference? Yeah, so supposedly it says that ectotherms, so this is just Wikipedia, but it says it says some ectotherms remain in temperature constant environments to the point that they're actually able to maintain a constant internal, internal temperature. And they're considered homeothermic. But for the most part, you can use them interchangeably. Technically, poikilotherm is is a is the um like just sort of fluctuates with the environmental temperature right. and thus uh yeah. So I guess using that term is is better, but people use both. So well, I'm nothing if not a pedant, so <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. So that's basically water temperature. It you'll we'll see a little bit how it has an impact on things. One of the things it has an impact on is pH and like how we measure pH. It also has an impact on how toxic ammonia is, but we'll get to that um, mm. later. So um did you guys have any thoughts or anything to add about water temperature or your experiences trying to manage it in an aquatic system? No, I don't know if you covered this because I was like looking that up, but I should say that like it absolutely affects metabolism mm -hmm. in your animals. Did you say that? No, no, I didn't. Okay, so it does in 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 any aquatic or any pachyotherm, <laughs> it affects their metabolism. So um, when you have a you know kind of on the higher range of temperatures for your mm -hmm. fish, they're going to be churning through um, their energy resources very fast. They're going to want to eat more, and they're also going to grow faster, and sort of vice versa for cold temperatures. So that's something to keep in mind. I know that is it is common not in fish. But it certainly is is very common in um, some amphibian models to keep them at very low temperatures because they almost go into like a stasis where they don't they don't really need to eat much and they don't metabolize hardly at all, but they can just kind of hang out and they're they do fine. They sort of go into hibernation mode. So it is uh, an interesting thing, but it it does definitely affect their sort of like life. Uh, yeah, so that's it. Sure. Yeah. And just for our listeners, um, I was wondering if we could all just say at what temperature do we keep our zebrafish at? Uh-oh. <laughs> That's a sore spot for my facility. Um, but... I think mine's at 82 Fahrenheit, whatever that Who is. Who uses Celsius. Fahrenheit? We're in a, we're scientists. Yeah, Celsius. Celsius. <laughs> Celsius, or get out. It's like all over the place in this facility. Like everywhere I go, it's just all over the place. Like, and, and it's, uh, yeah, it's unfortunate, but just some of the thermometers and heaters we have just are only, are only in, in Fahrenheit. I don't know why. I apologize, science community. Please forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> 
we'll give you a pass this one time. Well, we so- know that that's the one temperature, or like, there's two temperatures. Diana taught us this that you can like reverse, basically interchange the two digits. So 28 equals 82 approximately, and then there's like another one. Whoa! So, yeah, so 82 degrees is about 28. 82 degrees Fahrenheit is about 28 know. degrees. I didn't Celsius. know that. So I well, one thing I do know because I'm from a very cold place that minus 40 is the same in both. Oh, minus so 40. That's I so will useful. tell people that, like, <laughs> hey, it would get to be minus 40 where I'm from. And so I'd be like, oh, it's minus 40. And I don't have to tell you the units. So just so you know. It's- <laughs> <laughs> so, you're like so, waiting for this day. You're like, yeah, yeah. As as it gets, you like run outside. I hope someone asks me what temperature is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then I die of cold exposure. <laughs> freeze out there. You freeze solid. Yeah. Because it's like space. So. <laughs> But yeah, no. Um, so our systems are like between 26 and 27 and a half degrees. We don't keep them super, super warm. Yeah. I would say we're around the same as well. It's okay. a challenge to keep the systems. If our room is very big, I think you guys have seen a picture of it. Yeah. Um, and it's basically two rooms that were turned into one. And uh, the HVAC struggles because I think, and I think a lot of people deal with this in their fish facilities, wh- whether you're keeping deeper fish or another warm species, the HVACs are not designed, unless you build a specifically fish room, the HVACs are not designed to handle an aquatic environment and like the specific heating capacity of water and like the, the capabilities to heat or cool the systems. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we had that challenge with my, I had salmonids, which are, they need to be in cold water water at my old facility and like trying to keep those rooms cool real real challenge you know and the rooms weren't originally made to hold those animals it was the amount of energy expent just to keep those temperatures where they should be it's rough so definitely um again a lot of fish can handle like the fish that we commonly keep as as hobbyists they can handle a huge range of temperatures so Whatever works that you can keep stable in the, the space that you have your aquaria is better than trying to like have the temperature shoot up and down constantly. Like it's way better to do it that way. When you guys talk about zebrafish temperatures, I don't know if you're aware, but hobbyists keep those fish at room temperature. Zebrafish are kept at like <laughs> oh. 22 degrees Celsius. Like, oh, wow. As someone who came in. For Fahrenheit. <laughs> yeah. Well, 72, 72, something like that. Like whatever room temperature is, 70 something degrees. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. But like coming from like an aquarium background just as a hobbyist and seeing the zebrafish kept at like 82 degrees, I was like, what? Why? (laughs) (laughs) I've only ever kept them in a tank with no heater. And like, it's unusual to see them. They'll often be like in like crappier like pet stores in a link system where everything is kind of the same temperature oh. and they keep the temps jacked up to try to like cook off whatever diseases are in those tanks. Oh, God. That uh, does help, right? It, oh, well, we should do a parasite. A disease. Yeah. Do we have a oh. diseases episode? No, we, but paras- that the yeah, we need to have Marcus Krim for that or something. Oh yeah, we will. Oh no, I name dropped someone. Hi, Marcus. <laughs> Hi, Marcus. I hope you're listening. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. 
I was going to say that um, I, so I sort of disagree with you, actually. So I, I was taught, you know, because zebra danias, as we call them in the hobby, were our tropical species. We usually <laughs> did keep them at around. We usually did always require a heater or, or encourage people to get heaters. And yeah. we would keep them at usually 76 with our, uh, whatever the, hang on, let me translate this, 76 Fahrenheit. So whatever it was in Celsius. It's like high 20s. Celsius, yeah. okay. 24 Celsius. So we would always try to keep them at that but it's not, it doesn't require that much heating but right. yeah, we would do that because so. it's like what about things like white cloud mountain minnows those are like a room temperature fish those ones those were one of my starter fish actually when i was did you keep was, them warm or cold cool no, i kept them cool okay kept them in that was a non-heater tank maybe it's just a weird canada thing so i hear you're from canada yeah how's it going eh <laughs> I don't want to keep bringing up Canada, but like, Frig, maybe it's just like, I had never seen anyone keep Zebra Danios other than when people are buying them to cycle the tank, you know, <laughs> I'd never seen them kept rude. warm. It, was, um, <laughs> it is rude. I, I agree. Anyway, um, the other thing about water temperature I did want to mention was that water temperature, just like you said, can affect the metabolism or metabolic rate of the fish can also affect like the microbiome and like the, the nitrifying bacteria, kind of the environment for the fish. So whenever I was cycling a system, um, even the cold salmonid systems, we would like, we'd say we're cooking them. So we'd like to raise the temperature a little bit, at least <laughs> to get that bio, the, the cycle to occur faster. Cause in cold mm. water, it takes a long time to get that, those bacteria growing. Right. So, um, but that's something to be mindful of as well. I'm sure there are optimal temperatures for some of these organisms, but I don't know what that is. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, so that's pretty much water temperature. It has, like large size impacts on pretty much everything, but can also affect how much oxygen's in the water. It can affect how toxic your ammonia is in your system. It can impact your pH as well. So it is also important to remember that like different types of systems are affected. So water temperatures or an air temperature, there's sort of like um there's some interplay there, right? Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. if you have this has been my experience typically, and I think you guys would agree. If you have a, a circulating system that's running um, and it's like running through the water's constantly moving, right? All, you kind of assume that you can just take water from one spot or a temperature reading from one spot. That's basically going to give you an, an idea, more or less what the temperature is in the entire system. However, when you have static tanks or anything that's not connected to the system, then that temperature will typically sit a few degrees lower than the air temperature in the room. Mm -hmm. um, so that's something to keep in mind. It seems that typically when it's on a static, it's like a static tank that doesn't have any water, like, you know, any sort of water processing, mm -hmm. it sits a couple of degrees lower than air temperature. And then if you have something on the system, it typically tends to sit a degree or two above air temperature. Uh, in my experience, because of the heat coming off of pumps yep. and UV lights, it tends to be a little bit warmer. Sure. So, um, I call that heat mass, the heat mass of the life support mm. system. So okay. definitely that is something to think about for sure. Do you guys, did you guys learn about evaporative cooling when like, you were just doing... like sweat, right? Okay. Isn't that sweating? Mm -hmm. It's also Same what, idea. it's also the reason why the water can be cooler in a static tank. So okay. 
Um, one way you can try to mitigate evaporative cooling and how it impacts the water temperature of your tank. And this happens in, in a, a recirculating system as well, but a lid will make a big difference for evaporative cooling. Mm, so cool. like having a, an open top tank, the, usually the margin near the, the water surface will be a little cooler because to evaporate water into like moisture in the air, um, it takes a ton of energy. And so it's actually cooling the water while you're doing that. That's why sweating cools us down, right? It's the same thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the, the other thing that you can do, evaporative cooling can be much more uh, severe or like the, the effects can be much more significant in a drier space. So that's one of the reasons why sometimes you are concerned about what the humidity is in the room that you're in, like the relative humidity, yeah. because the drier the air, the more water is going to evaporate from your system and the cooler it's going to end up being like the more temperature heat you're going to lose basically from that system. So that's why, you know, keeping the relative humidity a little higher, which is a struggle in places like where I am, where it's very dry here, the humidity is always like 19, 20%. So oh, wow. uh, yeah. So we have to like actively humidify the space. Um, whereas in some places at sea level in a fish facility, you may have to actively dehumidify so you don't end up with a giant mold factory. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh, I love mold. <laughs> oh. <laughs> when that fish food gets on the lid of the tank oh, and it just starts no. to grow the mold. <laughs> I go with it. the scupula uh. and I'm scraping the mold off. It's great. That smell of the, the food rot. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, so that's like, it. it is really interesting how like a static space, like, but a lid will make a big difference in that. Obviously you want to have a lid so your fish don't jump out or whatever, but it was one thing I used to do when I had uh, axolot, axolots, the axolotl. axolotls. Axolotls, that's how you said it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the ways I kept them cool in the summer was I would run a fan, just like one of those clip fans across the lid of the, across the whole surface of the water that they were living in because it was just evaporative cooling. The more air that's moving across that interface between the air and the water, the cooler the, the tank would be. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. Mm. So it's a, uh, it's I don't know, weird physics things that I don't know much about. I just know that it works. So, <laughs> but yeah, no, that was a really good point. Thanks, Josh. Anything else you guys want to mention about water temperature? No. Okay. We can move on. Let's move on to pH. What do you guys know about pH? Oh, all I know about, P well, I know a lot about pH, but I guess like the thing that annoys me the most about pH is that whenever I want to start a sentence with pH, it has to be a low, like, I don't know how to do it because it's a lowercase p, right? I don't know sure. how to <laughs> How often do you no. start a sentence with the pH like the I don't know you know I just remembered it's happened before and so I don't know why like for some reason maybe it's been like at the beginning of a you're right though that seems weird to me like pH I, I really like it <laughs> what are you saying you know okay I guess I'm an idiot I'm realizing that now I'm so. not saying that I'm just <laughs> I'm saying it so, okay you know so basically what I know is that pH is essentially the number of free um hydrogens mm -hmm. no yeah mm -hmm. free hydrogens that are in the water and the more hydrogens you have high more acidic. higher no the, the more acidic it is is that so right the, yeah Amber so the lower okay. the ph would be the lower the ph that's the weird like thing right so what about you amber any thoughts on ph yeah just knowing about um acids and bases so mm -hmm. doing the titrations. I don't know if you guys remember doing that oh, in yeah. chemistry. 
Um, yeah. But yeah, turning a solution from acid to uh, basic or mm-hmm. vice versa in some cases. And especially for fish, you don't want it to be either. You don't want it to be too acidic or too <laughs> yeah. basic or yeah. you're going to have a lot of issues. For sure. Yeah, yeah. Neutralize so- idea. And also we, I mean, like we, I think we've all learned just from being in fish systems, how to sort of buffer the pH in different ways and how to like, so how to raise and lower the pH for the purposes of our, like our animals. Cause yep. at the target is usually somewhere around neutral. Mm-hmm. Um, and it depends on the species, obviously like salt water tends to be um, a, a few, a few pH points higher. So maybe like between eight and nine is typically typical for salt water, whereas fresh water you see a lot lower. So yeah, with the exception of cichlids, actually. So rift lakes are different too. So all right, chat again. Right. No, no, you're fine. And yeah, the, the pH being higher in salt water is something we can cover in another episode, but it has to do with all the dissolved crap that's in salt water. Mm-hmm. So uh, it has to do with all of that. And I don't know. I'll look at look that up another time. <laughs> this is freshwater only. That's it. Oh yeah, you said that. Sorry for sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. I want to anger the gods. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and may God have mercy on your soul. Um, but yeah, so pH basically stands for power of hydrogen. So it's basically a measure of how acidic or basic the water is, or whatever the solution is solvent that you're measuring. But we're talking about water here. And it's a logarithmic scale, and it goes from zero to 14. So zero is really, really acidic, uh, look out. And then uh, up, if you go up to 14, that's super, super basic or alkaline. And you probably don't want to be on either side of that scale. <laughs> I think our stomach <sighs> acids are somewhere lo- in the low like twos or something like that yeah Um, but yeah and so because of the logarithmic scale going from something like seven to eight or six to seven is a significant change in the the ph value and it can actually be super stressful for most fish so they have a lot of like changes they need to make physiologically to adapt to that and uh, changing how acidic or basic the water is can do damage to their gills and their their organs their ability to breathe so um, we need to be really mindful of that Um, I think you kind of alluded to this Josh but like six to eight is pretty common in fresh water you'll see like even tap water is usually somewhere in that range Um, and so, I mean, here in Colorado, the water is really hard. And so we actually have to soften the water that comes into our facility before it goes through any of our systems, because there are so many minerals in the water and the pH is like close to nine, depending on the time of year. And in part, they are artificially raising that because the the lead in the pipes everywhere and the lead doesn't react in more alkaline water. Hmm. But yeah, so we have to be mindful of that. We'll talk about something called carbonate hardness as well. That has an impact on your pH and um, and how quickly it may change or stay stable. It's kind of like a an acid sponge, the carbonate hardness. And I think we, you did mention that like seven is kind of the neutral. So it's not acidic or basic really. And that's kind of optimal like somewhere in that plus or minus a half a degree, right, is kind of optimal for a lot of like fish that we keep as hobbyists or in the lab. Um, it also around that range is best for the beneficial bacteria that live in the tanks or live in your live in your filtration system. So I think I had read that, uh, that whole family of bacteria really love like 7.2-ish, something like that. So, but yeah. yeah. 
I think the uh, and so just as a review for those of you who don't remember logarithms, kind of, I just had to re like re research this. So the logarithmic scale just means that like when you're going from seven to eight, a pH of eight is ten times higher than a pH yep. of seven. So mm -hmm. it's like it's just mm -hmm. multiplying by ten. So it's really a, a large, quite a large difference if you think about it that way. If you think of it from like a concentration standpoint or something like that, it's yeah. a really big difference. Which is why you, you know, the, the fish don't want to be when you're pushing that, especially fast. It's a huge influx and change for them. So it's tough. Yep. And it, so if, for me, if I'm acclimating fish to a system, if I'm lucky enough to have a system that has a really accurate pH probe, I'm not adjusting. Every day, I wouldn't do more than 0 0.05 uh, mm -hmm. pH adjustment if I have that kind of sensitivity, just to be as careful as possible um, with the system. But yeah. When you're, um, so for, for two different situations, A, when you're bringing a fish home uh, from a pet store to your own tank, mm -hmm. or if you're bringing fish into a facility, um, you do have to acclimate them. And there is an understanding that like, yeah, you're not going to be able to totally acclimate them as slowly as you know you could the whole system wide or something like that but typically i recommend that people take at least an hour if not a couple hours to like slowly um work their fish over to the actual ph of what's in the tank so like mm -hmm. i typically i'm like all right just add a small amount of water because a lot of people make the mistake of just being like well only temperature matters so they float a bag inside their fish tank at home all right i waited an hour it's the same temperature feels the same great all right and they just open the bag dump their fish in and then like half of them die because they get shocked mm -hmm. so sure. like someone just told me about this the other day and i was like oh this is why so it is important to acclimate them in terms of all the water chemistry parameters by like taking small amounts of that water from your tank, putting it inside the bag mm -hmm. and doing it slowly over the course of a few hours if you can, over an hour at the, at the, at the very least um, to just make sure that they can slowly acclimate, uh, which will help them survive. <laughs> I will add one caveat to that though, is if the fish come in, so say for example, this used to happen to us all the time because we would get pet trade fish at my old facility. The fish would come in sometimes in incredibly bad shape because the, the bags they were in were like filthy. They were mm. stuck too densely or whatever. And so they would be packed in an oxygen bag. So the bag has water in it, but then they've pumped oxygen in. And so as soon as I open that bag, the oxygen is just, it, they're just exposed to atmospheric air. Mm. So I either can throw an air stone in there, which is really stressful for those fish because that's really noisy. There's a ton of vibration there. Uh, to keep them from asphyxiating because they, there's too many fish in that that bag to like keep alive in atmospheric air and also the the ammonia or whatever is through the roof in that bag so it's a matter of you have to really kind of decide what's worse is are you going to keep them in that dirty water for longer and maybe have some su suffocate or like have some sort of um anoxic stress or are you putting them in clean water as quickly as you can and hope for the best? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That because used the to other, happen a lot to us. So the other thing that I have have heard, and I have never experienced this, but there is like a, f a phenomenon. I don't know if that's even the right word. Where like, if you have high ammonia in that bag, and you right they're going to be like creating carbon dioxide just by breathing and stuff like that. Yep. If yep. you open that bag up, it's gonna the carbon dioxide is gonna get released and the pH is gonna like rapidly rise, which causes as we're gonna talk about pH and ammonia interplay, mm -hmm. but that causes uh, the ammonia to become more toxic and it can really mess up your fish very fast. So I don't know. There are some interesting things that we do need to be aware of. Yeah. Um, 
And that's why you test the alkalinity, but we'll get into that. You test Ooh. the alkalinity of that water. Sorry, so. I'm putting the cart before the horse. <laughs> that's be. okay. No, no, you're all good. Um, but yeah, no, there, there's so much like little complex things, right? To, to be mindful of. The mm -hmm. Here's the bonus points. If you really want to be a super keen aquarist and you know there's a place you want to get your fish from, you find out what the pH is before you buy any fish. Mm. And you try to get your tank to where it is. Slick. Yeah. <laughs> and then just, if you know what the steady state is for your tank, you can slowly adjust your fish back, your new fish when you acclimate them. But that was the bonus points, like nerdy thing I used to do when I had like a hospital tank or a quarantine tank. Cause I had a quarantine tank where I bring fish in and I would try to emulate the, at one point, I think I actually brought in, like I got water from the sump of like one of these places. And just oh, it, like it yourself. No, I just put it in the tank. I just oh, I see, I see. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, <laughs> that's like bonus points. But yeah, I don't know. Um, Amber, what's your experience with pH and like trying to balance that in a zebrafish system? It can be a pain in small systems for sure. Oh yeah, pH is like probably like the worst thing or like one of the things that I have the most issue mm -hmm. issues with because especially nitrogenous waste. And so we'll talk about that again next. But mm -hmm. if you have a lot of fish on the system, they produce a lot of waste, of mm -hmm. course. And so that's going to lower like your pH and that's what but when it becomes toxic for the fish and can lead to all sorts of problems. So just making sure that it doesn't get too low because I hardly ever see it to where it gets too high, to be honest. Right. Um, and yeah. especially the, you know, substances that we use. And so in this case, I believe it's sodium bicarbonate. Correct yep. me if yep. I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But just like helping to kind of level out like the pH. Um, mm -hmm. At least that's what we used like on our systems. Mm -hmm. But usually it was because it would just drop because, you know, we are either feeding them too much and they were producing a lot of waste or something else was going on. Yeah. In, in my experience with a number of different zebrafish systems, so I'm not singling out any particular company, <laughs> but there is a real problem with the alkalinity of all of our systems being far too low. And mm. that is by design. And so I'll get to it, but um, if your alkalinity is too low, there are a lot of things that can cause your pH to take a dump when uh, you do th something like add too much food or the ammonia levels get too high. So that ammonia increases the amount of ions that are in the water and your pH is just tanking. And we, yeah. I had that happen before in like a quarantine system where the mm. pH would like go to four at one point it was four and it was just like the fish were not happy um <laughs> but that was because by design the system is not made to have alkalinity levels where i would be comfortable the whole thing with a lot of these dosing systems is <clears throat> it's simply looking at the ph and reacting to that um and so it's pumping in bicarb or whatever your buffering agent is but it's not necessarily reacting enough to be able to put more like carbonate hardness into the tank, but I'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole extra thing where people will talk about adding other carbonates, like say crushed coral or something like oh, that into yeah. their system to increase the, the carbonate hardness. But again, it has an impact on what like ions are in your water and what your biofilm looks like and what the bone structure of your fish looks like. So it's it's complicated right 
but yeah. doesn't that affect like Corian quality too? You I think that, so. Like, I think I didn't. Quality? I didn't say that, but I, I, it almost certainly does. I read a paper about that a while back that like yeah. basically like like if it was not hard enough, the Corians were like weak. The the eggshell oh. was very weak. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's interesting. Yeah, like that. I wonder does... if diet has more something to do with that than the actual. I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, yeah. it was a paper I read a while ago, so I'd be okay. interested to go back and look at it. But sure. Understanding, so interesting. But yeah, so pH, it's it's important to have pH that with is within a safe range for your animals so say somewhere six to eight ish uh, and there are no units for ph it's just a number between zero and 14 but the thing that i've i've generally told people is like figure out what ph you can manage in a way in your system whether you're you know i i'm not a huge fan of adding chemicals to the system to like mm. tweak the ph because those you know, the water evaporates and then there's more of that in there, et cetera, or you're constantly having to add it, right? So your pH is swinging around a little bit. I would be much more comfortable telling folks for most fish to figure out what you can do at a steady state with your system, whether Mm. it's a big aquaculture system or a single aquarium and acclimate your fish to that, you know, on the the knowledge that your alkalinity is good, but I'll get to that. So... (laughs) This this podcast everything is alkalinity. I'll get to that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just called. I'll get yeah. to that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Should we move on to nitrogenous waste, the bane Let's of all it. Aquarius? Yes. So, <laughs> <laughs> so bottom line is fish poop and pee. They excrete ammonia. Most fish will excrete just straight up ammonia as a waste product. Generally, it is passed uh, out of their gills, but they also can urinate out uh, ammonia products. We feed usually pretty high protein diets to Mm -hmm. fish, uh, and that will break down pretty quickly into ammonia as well. Fish poop can break down into ammonia. Just organic matter will break down and produce ammonia as a byproduct of the breakdown. Generally, when I think kind of new Aquarius see ammonia readings on like say you have a dipstick or you've got one of those little like take-home tests that you have that's like the little glass cuvette or whatever and you add Mm -hmm. drops to it and it's like a colometric test Mm -hmm. the general thought is if i see any ammonia oh no it's the end of the world now granted you should not have ammonia in your system if you can avoid it like aiming for zero ammonia is a life goals that's fine but those all of those tests that people do whether you're using a fancier colometric test that like can read and like spit out a number for you or whether you're just looking at like how green is this green you know um those are all reading something called total ammonia nitrogen so when you're talking about ammonia in a system, in an aquatic system, there are two components to that ammonia. You have total ammonia nitrogen is the, the bigger picture. And then you have unionized ammonia and ionized ammonia, which is ammonium. The ionized or the unionized ammonia, which sometimes I think of it as unionized ammonia because it looks like unionized. <laughs> it's the, the dangerous form of ammonia, the kind that you can have very, very little in your system before it's mm-hmm. going to start killing your fish. And so the thing is, though, when you're taking an ammonia reading and you see 0.1 or 0.2, that's total ammonia nitrogen. So you need to look at the bigger picture to see 
is there actually an amount of toxic ammonia in my system that is actually going to harm my fish? Generally, the answer is no. If you're keeping your fish at, you know, 28 degrees and seven ish pH. Um, I included a chart on the show notes. It's a kind of a ridiculous chart because it's not super accurate on either end. No one would ever tell you that like you can have hardly or like a ton of ammonia in a system at like a higher pH and it would be okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like <laughs> the like the the rates are a little, but you can see on that chart that basically the ratio of the unionized to ionized ammonia changes as the water temperature and the the pH change. So the higher your pH is, the more unionized ammonia that you have in that ratio. And there's math you can do to figure that out. I'm not going to include like formulas here, but you can find it. There are really great calculators online where you can figure that out too. But the more unionized ammonia you have at higher pH means it's potentially that value you're getting from your just regular test is more of the toxic form of ammonia. Higher temperatures mean that there are there's generally also more unionized ammonia, which is dangerous as well. So those are things to be mindful of. Are, have you guys, like when you guys were learning about ammonia stuff, did you learn about kind of the different kinds of ammonia or like, were you just kind of taught that like all ammonia is bad period? Yeah. All ammonia is bad period. Yep. I wasn't really taught about the different kinds and I didn't, I knew about them later on, but still yep. it was like, the goal was still to just reduce to zero or, or sure. nearly zero. I yeah. think the challenge is that like, depending on how many fish you have in your system and like how you feed them and like how soon after you fed them, you've read the the value, right? The, the challenge is sometimes when you have like managers from non-aquatic environments, they see that your readings, your ammonia readings are 0.1 and they're like, oh, no wonder you have fish that are dead. And it's like, well, can I just do this little calculation with you like and show you? <laughs> this is actually not harmful. And so this was a challenge that we had. I did a feed study recently where we were looking at like leaving food in, in a static tank and how dangerous that was for the fish. Mm. And it turned out that, you know, at the values that we were like reading and trying to parse out how much of that was the toxic ammonia, it like all was fine. Oh, wow. <laughs> So it was like, uh, you need to put a lot more ammonia in here to, at this temperature and this pH to make it actually dangerous. So I think you can, you always have to have a little bit of ammonia in the system. Otherwise you're going to lose your biofiltration. They need something yeah. to eat. Right. But I do like when I learned about that kind of like the total ammonia nitrogen and that like people need to not worry so much, that was kind of a revelation for me. And now I can like tell other people when they're like oh my god it says that it's 0.1 it's like no it's fine it's okay i know uh, it's so funny how i just look at like the values for that whenever i was testing the wire i'm like oh it's fine and it would be like maybe bigger than 0.1 but it's just it like you said it depends on your system and like right. the amount of fish that you have on that system so if you have more fish yeah it's going to be more or expected that you will have a higher ammonia levels right yeah. Like just looking at this chart, just to give you a ballpark. So say your pH is like 7.2 and I don't know what they think is become toxic to your fishes. I believe that like unionized ammonia needs to be 0 0.05 PPM before it's actually starting to do harm. So assuming that that's what this chart is looking at. So if your pH is 7.2 and you're keeping your fish at 28 degrees, you need to have a total ammonia nitrogen reading on your whatever meter you're using of 1.8 mm. 
uh, ppm mm-hmm. which is a lot it's like yeah. you know almost tw- 10 20 times as much right so anyway i just that was something where i've run into with like folks who who mean well for sure that don't necessarily know the the chemistry end of things and try to explain to them that like ammonia is more complicated than just like that simple number so um i find when i do most of my water tests though that it is pretty much sitting at zero i mean yeah. i don't yeah it, i i try to keep it there and and once we're done talking about the nitrogen cycle in general i'll kind of explain a little bit of like a case study of what happened with me recently that i think is kind of interesting so yeah Yeah. (laughs) keep in mind for like some folks that use um chloramex some of those chemicals i don't know if either of you guys have ever used chloramex or just for rotifers okay so chloramex is one chemical that you can add to a system like we use it as a redundancy in our dosing system just in case there's a chloramine breakthrough at some point it gives us a little bit of extra time to like parse that out when we do our Mm -hmm. qas on our ro to see if there's chloramine breakthrough anyway it will give you depending on what kind of uh, test you're using for ammonia because there's a number of different chemical tests you can do but it will give you a false positive reading for ammonia a tiny tiny amount so um in part because it's like breaking down like or converting the the total ammonia nitrogen from unionized to ionized um that's what uh that chloramex has like a that chemical in it that like messes with the ratios of those ammonias um but it will give it it interacts i don't know the chemistry of it but it interacts with that chemical to give you a tiny false positive so i usually try to be mindful of that as well but yeah so basically ammonia is really really bad we want to try to limit how much is in the tank uh or in whatever environment you're keeping your animals in but we have beneficial bacteria that live in the all surfaces basically, but we generally have filtration surfaces that have like increased surface area to grow these beneficial bacteria. I think it used to be thought that there was like, I think you guys probably all learned like nitrosomonas or nitrosomonas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Apparently it's not just that organism. There's a bunch of them. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, it's not just that one species. So mm-hmm. I think that's kind of what we all learn, but it's, it's, so I call it nitrosomonas and friends. So, <laughs> cause Aww, I don't, like a TV show. <laughs> I know, right? Sounds it's... like a superhero show for yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah. So I think now like the general term, when you're talking in like aquaculture terms, the appropriate term is ammonia oxidizing bacteria. They don't name a specific species but there's also ammonia oxidizing archaea which is a whole we're not talking about fish here so i don't know if you guys know what archaea are but a long time ago i feel like i learned about this in like one bio class or something but so they used to be considered they used to be considered bacteria but like they're kind of a different branch of like Mm -hmm. like eukaryotic organisms right Mm-hmm. anyway so We're getting out of our wheelhouse i know <laughs> anyway i just thought it was cool when i was researching because i'm like i know it's not just nitrosomonas now i know it's other species but i tried to find out all the species and there's a lot of debate and it it, it also impacts like what's impacted is you know how you seeded your system and what part of the world you live in like what the makeup of that microbiome is right so mm. anyway so oh, that's interesting i know right <laughs> Yeah, because archaea live in like extreme environments yeah, too, yeah. right? And so you'll find them like, I want to say just, yeah, everywhere where it's like literally unlivable. Well, this sucks. Yeah, like Yellowstone. Yeah. 
So I think maybe that they may like make up part of the the organisms that break down in places that are fairly uh, anoxic. So maybe they don't they aren't able to get oxygen. So maybe they live like under the layers of bacteria on the the biofiltration. You know what I mean? Like they live under oh, everything. Yeah. I'm just spitball. I have no idea if that's true. I'm, I'm making. Let us know if you do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. They lack Uh, nuclei and are therefore prokaryotes. Good. Oh, sorry, prokaryotes. I said eukaryotes. I meant prokaryotes. Yeah, I swear I did. (laughs) That's fine. So now you know. Mm -hmm. It's a whole lot of information. Google Archaea if you want to learn a bunch of stuff that you probably didn't know. Yeah. (laughs) So let's move on. Basically, those bacteria oxidize ammonia and turn it into something different called nitrite now people will sometimes mix up nitrite and nitrate they're two very very different things nitrite is definitely less toxic than ammonia but it's still not great like it's still not a fantastic thing to have in your water Um, depending on the makeup of your water chemistry it can actually impact uh, how oxygen is taken up across the gills so i don't know if you guys know this but um it actually nitrite toxicity in fish actually looks a lot like carbon monoxide poisoning oh so it oh, actually i did know that well so no i you know how i know this or i know how i know this because you need to know how i know this yeah um <laughs> is that my at one point i had an issue where this is another thing about the nitrogen cycle this is a separate case study this is just at home um i had a tank with like only a few fish left and i was like waiting to move so i was like i'm not gonna put a bunch of fish in there and then i think we moved or something and then i like bought a bunch of fish and i was like oh the tank's fine like it probably has enough bacteria to like handle what i'm putting in there but i went from like you know let's say like two or three fish in a 55 gallon tank to i probably put in like another like dozen or more Mm -hmm. and it was too much and it was like an influx of ammonia from them and it had really high it did somehow i guess the bacterial colonies were able to deal with the ammonia but they could not convert all the nitrite nitrite got really high and all my fish were breathing really heavy so i looked you know my wife was like so what what does that do to them physiologically and i was like i have no idea let's google it and when I looked up that it affects basically their oxygen intake or something like that, and you can shed more light on this, I put like a big bubbler in the tank on like high and I bubbled the hell out of it. And those fish lived and they made it through <laughs> the nitrite poisoning basically until the tank could cycle all the way. Nice. So, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. So they did survive. That was the only way for me to get around it without them dying because they started to look really bad really quickly and i was like really nervous i was going to lose everything oh. um but that did that did save them so uh word to the wise if you have high nitrates you can you can do that <laughs> for sure yeah so it basically causes what like we call methemoglobinemia so like oh yeah we all know what that is it, it, so I, sorry, I, that's my vet tech nerdness coming through so that's that's the the condition that you get when you have carbon monoxide poisoning so mm. the carbon the monoxide carbon monoxide attaches to the hemoglobin in your blood and prevents oxygen from connecting so it, it kind of oh. has the same binding site or whatever i don't know the all the organic chemistry please don't come after me but that sounds right <laughs> it like it it will attach to that site and so um normally oxygenated hemoglobin is like nice bright red you know but when it binds to carbon monoxide 
or in this case, whatever the chemical composition is in nitrite that causes this, it turns the blood cells brown. And so you oh. end up with this brown blood disease. So fish that have this have like kind of muddy, like tissues, basically. And for a human or like an animal that has carbon monoxide disease, like your mucous membranes where you're checking like the color, you know, when people turn blue, mm -hmm. if they don't have enough air, you're turning kind of brown and like like just kind of your your mucous membranes are kind of like muddy colored so so that's kind of the same thing with fish so another thing you can actually do aside from adding oxygen or adding like atmospheric air to the tank is you can add chloride ions which help prevent that binding from happening so if you add like just like sodium chloride to the tank that can help like fight that nitrite disease mm as well hmm. so i wonder if that's because then it so it, so does it then bind to the chloride instead of binding to your hemoglobin maybe? i'm not entirely sure and i seem to recall when i was reading this that like no one's entirely convinced why it, it happens so oh. yeah it's just like anecdotally folks had been saying for a long time in aquaculture that like, yeah, throw a bag of salt in there. If your fish are getting <laughs> brown blood disease and it seems to help. Um, but it seems like the chloride ions in particular, um, help to protect fish. So something to be mindful of another reason to keep a bag of no name aquarium salt. <laughs> um, but yeah, so nitrite is not great to have around. There's no real complexity as far as like this form is good. This form is bad. All nitrite is bad. And we want to try to limit how much that's in there. And then there are organisms, beneficial bacteria that oxidize or break down that nitrite into something that is less, less toxic. So we call those nitrogen oxidizing or nitrite oxidizing bacteria. Used to be just nitrobacter, but now it's nitrobacter and friends, just like the last group. So <laughs> yeah. So any other thoughts about nitrite before we move on to the last step here, at least for fish? Yeah, I feel like for us, nitrites were something that you just wanted to avoid like yep. altogether. So I know how we talked about ammonia, which is also not very good. You don't want too much of that. But I remember this one. I thought it was to like the thousandth or something like that. Or the, hmm. yeah, I think based on maybe the um, system or like the equipment that we were using to test it, we mm -hmm. just wanted like 0. 0.00 something like one maybe hmm. um, or like no nitrites but I could be wrong. Sure. You can look at like a lot of the standard, even like the API tests, really simple colorimetric tests. And they'll kind of, you can kind of glean what's acceptable because like you can look at the increments, right? So in like ammonia, it starts at like 0.25 and it goes to 0.5 and then one parts per million. And, and uh, I think nitrite, it's similar-ish, maybe like twice as high, like, you know, twice as high in terms of being able to handle it. And then nitrate, as we'll get into is they can handle a much, much higher concentration. So I thought they were like sim similar in terms of how much they can, they can handle fish for ammonia versus nitrite. Um, but certainly they're, they're both toxic enough that you want to keep them low. Yeah. 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 I, I generally think of it just like carbon monoxide now like there's always going to be some in the environment and like mm -hmm. it, it'll knock out because that destroys your that blood vessel or that uh that hemoglobin basically once it's bound to Forever? carbon monoxide yeah yeah, yeah. oh wow. 
wow, that sucks. Okay. So that's something to be mindful of where it could be a chronic stress issue with fish where if they're constantly, depending on like the chloride levels in the water um, and a number mm -hmm. of different factors, like the if the nitrites are kind of borderline for a long time, maybe oh. your fish are having to make more and more blood to compensate. You know what I mean? So let's move on from nitrite then. And uh, the last thing here we're going to talk about is nitrate. So nitrate is kind of the final step in the the ammonia or the nitrogen cycle, at least for fish. The nitrogen cycle for like other environments is much more complicated. So nitrate basically is kind of fertilizer. We kind of just consider it a thing that plants really like and plants need to live. It can cause algae issues in your systems as well. And so that's something to be mindful of. One of the reasons we don't want to have it be super high in the system. I don't know if you guys are ever concerned about your nitrate levels in your system. I find for us, because we feed so much of a specific diet, that our nitrate levels are always pretty high. Yeah. Is that something you guys experience? It seems to be a common complaint for like aquaculture in general. <laughs> yeah it it typically is and it's funny because like we were talking about this on like maybe like a group group chat uh with zebrafish people once or something and like someone was like yeah like my you know my nitrates are at like 40 parts per million like and they're so worried about them we're like don't worry like yeah. a lot of us have seen <laughs> much higher than that yeah totally 100 percent. so um generally i think what's taught to most people is that Nitrates are simply removed by water exchange, um, especially if you don't have like plants or anything in your tank. If you have like growing live plants mm. in an aquarium, mm -hmm. nitrates will get removed by them and off-gassed as nitrogen. But did you guys ever learn or were you ever told that nitri nitrate off-gasses as well? I did not learn that. If it does, it certainly doesn't keep up not, with that. Not as nitrate, but like it, something happens and it breaks down and it off gases as nitrogen. I don't know. Mm. I was told that by like a very old person at my old job. And he's like, yeah, yeah. If you notice the nitrogen levels in this room are higher because all the nitrates off gassing. And I'm like, really? Uh. I don't, I could not find, I couldn't find anything either way about whether or not that's the case, but they swore that like, I don't, we don't need to change any water in these tanks because the nitrate just off gases over time. And I'm like, well, what happens to the eight, the rate, the nitrogen is gone. What happens to the rest? I don't know. <laughs> but yeah. Little tiny gremlins come in and steal it. Because you never can tell. There just might be a gremlin in your house. Yeah. And that's, yeah. <laughs> and that's why the earth is flat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no. I'm that's, starting to worry. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's what makes up chemtrails, right? <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but yeah, so nitrates generally, you know, you want to see generally uh, less than 100 ppm. Sometimes you'll see two or three. What I had read was depending on the species, you know, 200 plus can be stressful um, oh, over wow. the okay. long term, but there are some fish that like are used in aquaculture or like aquaponics. Like mm -hmm. I think some tilapia strains are good up to like four or 500 oh, and wow. they don't really care. So yeah. So that's nitrate basically. Did you guys have any experience like with like dealing with nitrate or anything you wanted to add? Yeah, I mean, I feel like the biggest issue with nitrate is the food source. Mm -hmm. And so like you said, we feed a lot of like protein to our fish. Mm -hmm. And so I, I feel like this is just an issue that's going to continue. 
mm-hmm. unless like a different type of like food source comes about to where it doesn't cause like, you know, high nitrate levels. Yeah. But I always found that, you know, using certain diets, like it, it, the nitrate levels are always going to be high and there's sure. not much you can do about it. You can decrease the amount of feedings that you do. So I've mm-hmm. seen some people do that and it does help with like the nitrate levels along with like the water exchanges. But yep. besides that, I don't know if there are any other solutions to it. So final thing to talk about all of this, have either of you guys used ion exchange resins to deal with any of these things, nitrate, nitrite, or ammonia? No. Have- Never. Okay. So this is a trick that like I learned in like, just keep as a hobbyist, I always would keep ion exchange resins around in like, just to throw in a filter bag if I needed them. And so I keep them in my facility now too, where I either have the ion exchange beads. And so they're these like blue beads that you buy. These are the ammonia ones specifically, and they adsorb ammonia uh, total uh, to into the beads the beads change color and then they're done I guess there's potentially a chemical thing you can do to like re regenerate them we just throw them away but like if we have an issue say in like a small system we will throw those beads in to adsorb but it, it may have an impact on your biofilter because it's taken all the ammonia out but it's good oh. in a pinch the same thing with nitrate there are these like filter pads that you can buy that are like basically impregnated with a a resin that will adsorb nitrate i think there's probably one for nitrite as well so i keep those things around just for emergencies um, if I'm having issues where like, I'm not gonna be able to do a water exchange and my nitrates are going to go through the roof because, you know, we have to conserve water for some reason. There are larger questions about how the rest of the water chemistry are impacted. But when it's something like ammonia, where your fish may die because you cannot, you know, you can't manage your pH because your ammonia is going crazy and your alkalinity is not where it needs to be. Um, I always keep those things in my back pocket as a, something to be mindful of. Mm. I, I think they get used in large scale in like some aquaculture setups, like closed aquaculture systems. Um, but yeah, I don't know the chemistry behind. I just know it's like taking, taking the ammonia out of the system. I don't know what it's putting in there though. Hope it's <laughs> I, I don't hope think it's, it's putting anything good. in there. I mean, I know that there are some medias that I was aware of where you could like reduce yeah, your, your like zeolite and such, right? Like yep, the, yep, the yep. yeah. So yeah, you can exactly. use that. Zeolite apparently can also adsorb chloramine. So, oh, cool. yeah, we don't That's use awesome. it. We use a catalytic carbon for granulated catalytic carbon um, for our chloramine. But that's another that's, again, another thing. To talk about. <laughs> <laughs> we can add that. To yeah, the um, I was going to add. Do you want me to add my quick case study thing that I find? Yeah, interesting? yeah. Kind of finish this up. Sure. So, um, so we have one, a standalone system. It's like a single basically like a single rack with like 60 tanks. And, um, you know, because we're waiting on, we're just really crowded right now because we have a researcher who's like taking up that whole area, but it's going to expand to like a larger area, a larger system. And so, but anyway, his tanks were like pretty overcrowded. Like there were a lot of fish in these tanks and it was like, I think it's because he was like in, in, uh, to get ready for the move in preparation. They were like really stocking everything. And I was doing water quality. Usually, I usually do it every week. Um, but sometimes I miss weeks. So it's usually like at the, at the very least, we have to do it every other week. Um, and so when I was doing that water quality, like the color metric test, I was getting back like ammonia, little, like little bits. First, it started like it was very high nitrates. 
slightly high nitrites and then finally i started seeing ammonia again and i got worried because i was like what is going on and i increased water changes and it still wasn't really doing the trick so what i did was i just told the lab they had to reduce their population by a bit like not a ton but by a bit and they did and literally within a week all the water quality is back to normal Hmm. so it was just literally the number of animals on there was creating such of like such a mass of ammonia i don't think the bacteria was able to catch up like it just wasn't able to convert things fast enough and so uh by just reducing that load it helped everything to sort of equalize so i thought that was really interesting because i didn't think i thought on a system that was like big enough with a decent enough biofilter where all that bacteria is living that it would be okay to handle you know that many fish and it just couldn't do it so So. sorry did you say it was a standalone uh, standalone system yeah i so this is anecdotal i'm not naming any brands or companies but in my experience the standalones uh set up for zebrafish if you try to fill a standalone whether it's a single Mm -hmm. or a double rack there's not enough biofiltration space in that thing to handle a full system yeah, I think you're right. I think it seems like a little bit of an afterthought sometimes. So and that's so... one of the reasons why I keep those ion exchange resins. Like that's one of the yeah. reasons because there are times where I have to fill my quarantine and I my biofilter is not cutting it. So mm-hmm. um, we will we'll throw some like I may even just take like a filter bag, like one of those media bags that you can buy or like a stocking. You can use a stocking and I will put them that bead media in there and throw it in a tank on the system. So I'm not throwing it in the sump. It's in a tank. So it's just recirculating. But I don't have to worry about those beads getting like eaten by the impeller of a pump or something. Mm. So and then when it turns yellow, take it out and put some new <laughs> ones. in. So yellow means fish pee. Yay. Perfect. (laughs) Let's end on that. Yeah. So we still have a ton of stuff to talk about, but we realize now that we have gone over time. So we are actually going to wrap up and turn this into a two-parter. Yay. Heck (laughs) yeah. We still have to talk about salinity and conductivity, all the hardnesses, which include alkalinity, really, uh, dissolved gases and then other dissolved things, and the dreaded ORP, ORP. That's the sound I make when I think about it. Orp, um, yeah, it's like, it sounds I'm like you're burping throw, up. Yeah, throw like my mouth a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think we'll turn it into a second episode uh, to to come in the future. And uh, yeah, I think we'll might as well wrap this up now. Stay tuned for part two of water chemistry because there's too much chemistry for one episode. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening to Getting Fishy With It. You can find our website with show notes at gettingfishypod.substack.com you can find us on twitter at gettingfishypod and on instagram at gettingfishypod you can also find us on facebook and linkedin by searching for getting fishy with it if you want to drop us an email you can send your complaints or questions to gettingfishypod at gmail.com thank you so much for listening our theme music is best time by fast sounds and our audio is edited by the illustrious amber parchiadini We've been getting fishy with it. So keep schooling, my friends, because knowledge is power. 